everyone. Brian Beck here, author of Billion Dollar B2B E-Commerce. I am thrilled to welcome you to session five of our virtual book tour. I wrote this book to give B2B companies a roadmap to their own digital transformation, and I'm excited to share it with the market. You can find out more about the book here on this uh, website, BillionDollarB2BEcommerce.com. And the book is now available on Amazon.com in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. Before we go much further, I want to thank our sponsors, particularly our uh, platinum sponsor, uh, Elastic Path, uh, for this virtual book tour. Uh, our first four sessions are now available, Leadership and Alignment Through Organizational Evolution. And today we're talking about aligning selling channels. We've got three more sessions after this digital marketing, online experience, and uh, our digital future. So I hope you join us for the remainder of our sessions as well. Today, we're gonna to be talking about aligning selling channels and managing channel conflict. These are chapters five and six in Billion Dollar B2B e-commerce. We have a lot, a lot of good content in here to cover. And what I'm gonna to do uh, today is start with some context around the concepts. Now, I can't share everything, obviously, that's in the book. Um, you don't have time, but uh, so you have to get the book to read everything. But I want to give us some context, and then I'm I'm really excited. We have Shalene Shah, who was uh, recently with Georgia Pacific and has a long career there, really uh, dealing with some of these issues we're going to be sharing uh, in just a minute. And Jameis Driscoll from Elastic Path is also on uh, on our session today, so I'm excited to dive in on that. And we'll take some uh, uh, you know some back and forth and have a little bit of a fireside chat as we go through. So let me start with some context. So this is what the traditional value chain looks like. You know, for hundreds of years, many B2B companies have sold the same way, where you know, they make a product, you know, manufacture and sell that to an offline distributor or retailer or other type of reseller, a dealer perhaps. And then that, that reseller would then sells it to the end user or the buyer of the product. And this is how the business worked for a long time. There was clear value uh, added at each step uh, and really a lot of the control of the end customer's uh, use of the product, the perception of the product and how it compared to other products uh, was controlled really by the middle of this, of this uh, screen here, the offline distributor. But the world has changed. Buying and influence channels have changed and are now heavily digitized. Up to 90% of the buying processes is done online. Uh, research is done online today. And so the product manufacturer today is often now selling direct to the end customer, that person who uses the product in the field. And the center has also evolved. You've got distributors and resellers that have become digitized. They have their own um, e-commerce channels and other digital channels. You have e-commerce pure play resellers that have emerged. You know, think about the Zorro division of Granger and, and other, um, other pure play e-commerce players. And then you've also got marketplaces playing a huge role. These are Amazon, but it's also other companies that are selling product that are vertical specific marketplaces. I have a number of them profiled in the book as well. What really this is telling us though, is that the buyer or the end user in this world has more power than ever before. Not only to see product information, they have multiple buying options and paths, they're more informed. They can see pricing more easily. There's more transparency. <clears throat> I tell a story in the book about how the auto industry, for example, has evolved over the last 20 years. Think about your process of buying a car these days. 
right? You go online, you research the product, you research the car, you, you are more informed with both the information about those vehicles, how it compares to others and the pricing, and you have many different ways to buy. And that has forced the product dealers, the, the, the auto dealers, to change how they're delivering value to that customer. Those same dynamics are coming to B2B in, in different industries. It has changed the margin profile for the auto dealer as well. They make less on selling the product, the car, than they do on other things like warranties and service. I think Jeff Bezos, who is a founder of CEO of uh, Amazon, excuse me, says this really well. He has this quote, and I love this quote, I use it all the time. Back in 2010, he said, the balance of power is shifting towards buyers and away from companies. The right way to respond to this if you are a company is to put the vast majority of your energy, attention, and dollars into building a great product or service and putting a smaller amount into shouting about it or marketing it. So when you think about how channels are evolving and how you need to align them, this, this, is, a, this is an approach that I think bears, bears reflecting on for all of our B2B folks in the audience. What, well, how does that ultimate customer make their decision about your product and if you're a distributor, you're sitting in the middle of that, you've got to make sure you're adding value to the end customer in ways that go beyond just price and selection. Because guess who does that better than anybody? It's that guy, <laughs> right? Amazon.com. Uh, Is this death of a salesman? Uh, you know, it's uh, a few years ago, Forrester came out with a report. Uh, the fellow who wrote the forward in my book, Andy Hoare, and he said, hey, this is, you know, he proposed, hey, this is the death of a salesman. He was actually not saying that. What he was saying really was that this is the evolution of the traditional selling channel and evolution of how uh, the internal sales teams can become more effective. And it's a leveling up too, right? Because if you're, if you're selling, if, you're sell, if your sales force is just selling based on price and relationship, that's going to, that their, their role has now expanded and has become more strategic and has, and has been leveled out by digital. And I, I, I believe, and we see this in practice, that digital transformation doesn't replace effective account management. It actually enhances its effectiveness. And it empowers the relationship. It allows customers to browse, obtain support, and purchase at their own convenience. And that allows the B2B selling teams to focus on building customer relationships, new customer acquisition, becoming more strategic. It also allows sellers, whether you're a distributor or manufacturer, to more profitably, profitably sell to smaller customers through e-commerce, you can expand your reach while also potentially commissioning your sales team on, this, on the sales that are generated through e-commerce. You can also credit your dealers and third-party channels. Uh, so there's ways to, and we'll talk about this with Shalene, there's ways to align your channels around these things to, that avoid channel conflict. And also self-service. It, it frees reps to be more um, focused on things that matter for their function and not Where's my order? You go online to do those things. So what is channel conflict? You know, the, the, the internet uh, authority on everything, Wikipedia, <laughs> puts it this way. Channel conflict occurs when manufacturers, brands, disintermediate their channel partners, such as distributors, retailers, dealers, and sales representatives by selling their products directly to buyers through general marketing methods and or over the internet. I think this is fine, but I think the definition actually needs to evolve, and this is straight out of the book. Channel conflict, in my opinion, is actually really applies to all levels of the chain that I shared earlier. So I define it this way. Channel conflict occurs when any participant in the value chain disintermediates any portion of the value chain, including manufacturers, brands, distributors, et cetera, et cetera. What I add to this is manufacturers and brands because 
you know, if I look with, look at some of the distributors that I work with um, and, and some, you know, very large, some mid market, they are buying suppliers. They are launching private labels. They are going backwards in the supply chain. So it's not just about manufacturers having all the power to go to the end customer and selling. It's also about the distributors and resellers themselves competing and competing for that end buyer's dollars with their own products because they realize that there's more margin and more differentiation longer term by meeting those customers' needs at the end of the day. So this is a very fast moving and changing world we're dealing with. We'll talk about this with Shalim. So before we get into our fireside chat, I just wanted to share a few things about, you know, some approaches to managing channel conflict and some of the dynamics. So you see that these channels can compete for the same ultimate buyer's dollars and that's really the source of potential conflict. And when you think about the internal conflict, your sales team and e-commerce, and again, conflict, I think in many ways is more of a perception than a reality. But when you think about what could cause it or what, what is, what is the, the sales force, for example, thinking about, it's about relationship ownership. It's about commission. It's about pricing. It's about things that are related to that, you know, the relationship and the fear that that will be taken away from the internal sales team. And the external conflict is often centered on price. So you think about the manufacturer selling direct, you pick up all that retail margin. Oh my goodness, you have pricing power, right? But there are paths to manage that. So what I always tell companies is it's important to understand the ultimate customer, the user of the product and the path with which companies, uh, your products take to get to that customer and the value at each step of that distribution process, the supply chain. You want to define your selling channel mix and the value of each channel and what it does best. And I say, be realistic about it because this is a, you know, a confront the brutal reality situation. If I coin Jim Collins um, from good to great, you got to confront what's happening in your market, understand that it's digitized, but that ultimate buyer has more power than ever before. So you need to understand them. And there's no single right answer here. Remember the ultimate buyer is in charge. So you all have met me. Uh, I'm Brian. I'm the author of this book. Um, and I'm also the managing partner of a company called Inceba. We help companies manage their uh, Amazon programs and particularly focus on B2B e-commerce. I also do strategic um, advisory consulting with, um, with my firm Beck e-commerce. So I am thrilled to be joined today uh, by Shalene Shah. Uh, Shalene uh, is uh, formerly with Georgia Pacific, has a long career there. And uh, I want to welcome him. And Shalene, you want to say hello to everyone? Hi everyone, Shalene Shah, really nice to meet you. Looking forward to chatting with you today about a topic dear to my heart on B2B e-commerce and channel conflict. Awesome, thanks Shalene. And uh, Jameis, welcome back. You were at our last session and uh, thrilled to have you. We had a great conversation last time with Pella and we're gonna have another great one today. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Brian, it's great to be here and I'm really looking forward to our session today too, um, as much as a listener, as a participant. Um, so I'm Jameis Driscoll, uh, Executive VP at Elastic Path, um, and I've been in the e-commerce world and retail tech world for uh, close on now 20 years. Um, so um, seen a lot of permutations and a lot of changes in the marketplace and certainly believe that we're at the next step of one of the great, great changes that's going to shape the industry. No doubt. No doubt. So I'm thrilled to have both of you guys. So Shalene. Uh, tell us, you know, the, a lot of folks uh, use GP products, Georgia Pacific products every single day, businesses and consumers. And they, you know, they may not realize it. And a lot of people are familiar with GP, but some aren't. So please tell us more about, um, you know, your, your, the company and then also your role within the company. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think everyone's either touched or seen Georgia Pacific, hopefully somewhere in the U.S. Uh, so Georgia Pacific, real quick, three business units really think about. One is building products. So any kind of building that gets built, there's all the products that go into that construction. The one consumer products, which is the business unit that I was in, which I'll talk about in a second. And then the third one is, you know, packaging and corrugated. It's a thing about anything, any package that anything can come in, we build all that stuff. And so I was in the consumer products division. And so we would sell paper towel dispensers and soap dispensers and toilet paper and toilet paper dispensers into buildings. So we making sure everyone stays clean and things like that. So hospitals, airports, office buildings, hospitals, all those types of things. And so that, um, that was a business unit that, that I was in and I was responsible for e-commerce and marketing strategy. I'll have to ask you about the, uh, the great toilet paper crisis that happened earlier this year with, with the whole COVID-19 yes. thing. Yes. <laughs> the world was the yeah. Yeah. So the man changes very quickly, yeah. so. particularly in a pandemic. <laughs> right? Yes, pretty so. great. But the cool part was I saw our pro products sitting on a public shelf. So there's a channel conflict right there. <laughs> there you go. Chase so. it out the system and figure out how that happened. The, um, yeah. You know, it's interesting to hear about the, you know, the evolution of a business that's as widely you know, diverse as yours, right? From building products to consumer to packaging. Um, and you've obviously, you know, the company has grown, been around for a long, long time, been incredibly successful, 30,000 employees plus, um, you know, phenomenal story. I guess the question would be, how did it get to that um, type of growth? And, you know, prior to the world of digital, which believe it or not existed at one point in time, yeah. um, you know, what were the primary channels to market and ways that it would thought about selling? Yeah, no, good question. I mean, so in your specific, really the primary channels, one, there was actually a lot of acquisitions that were made um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, either acquisitions of companies or acquisitions of capital assets. And so the reason I give you that background is that that kind of created the different routes to market. Uh, and the routes to market were, were primarily through resellers, right? So the way Brian just outlined it. And so it was, hey, we're going to get you the best product we can very quickly. Um, and then surrounding those resellers with lots of services. I mean, that was a pretty much the primary way that GP really grew was having really strong products with the right services and getting it there on time, mm -hmm. right? Across all three of those things. And so if you think about it, anything you can make out of a tree, we basically make, and we make sure that we can get it to them really quickly. And so that's, that was a primary growth channel. I see. So predominantly sort of its roots were focusing in on getting as many, um, marketable assets out of the tree as possible and then reliant on a reseller channel to reach those three major distribution or those three major markets around you know consumers and um, packaging and the building materials yeah correct right because i mean we had a large manufacturing network and then we built out the distribution network to get it out but if you think about getting to a construction site getting to a building getting to somebody's home getting to factories or wherever we needed the resellers to to do that and get the services and all those that's things. So that's where you that's where you guys started Shelly and you had this so it really is like I described earlier in the slides where you had that sort of flat distribution structure right and then the world yeah. started changing right you you, you yes. worked there 10 years right you were you were in years, charge of, yeah. of the uh, digital for this particular mm -hmm. com, right for this particular category you're in what was that journey like where did you start when you you joined a decade ago Agenda. Tell us about that whole digital transformation journey, and and then we'll get into some of the things you saw along the way. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So you know, when when I joined, you know, it was um, a lot of the selling was obviously done through resellers and things, and so we one of the, and then the second thing was a lot of our marketing was traditional marketing methods. You know, 
television on the retail side, trade shows, sell sheets, uh, you know, dinners, <laughs> you know, that type things. And so um, when we put it together, we said, look, we, we're going to put a business case together that says, we believe our fair share um, online with somebody by the name of maybe Amazon or others um, is not what it is offline. And so we actually made a bet that, hey, the business case bet is we think we can grow online faster and we put reasons as to why. And we also said, but it's going to be joint with marketing because we want to shift our uh, offline marketing spend to digital spend. And we actually put a business case together that said we think we're going to get a higher ROI because we can measure it. Um, and so um, the transition made sense, you know, from a business case level. It, it, to your point, it just took a long time to kind of get the change going. I mean, I, I still remember, you know, calling on Amazon, um, it was a third party broker with my head of sales and it was like $99,000 of business. And I think the vendor manager was like, well, what are you doing here? Um, but the journey evolved pretty quickly actually from there to, hey, we can do things differently. You know, how do we get improvement in where things are going? Uh, we, you know, we kind of took a challenger mentality as well. Like, hey, we can do things differently that we couldn't do elsewhere. And same, you know, when we started uh, calling them with Granger and Staples, what we wanted to do, the journey evolved more to, hey, look, we know you like our products and kind of the services we have wrapped around our field sales team. We want to make sure we have all those same services wrapped around our digital components. So we then started to invest in, in data and in product content and in, in search terms. And, we kinda, and then we invested in assortment. Then we invested in merchandising. Then we invested in supply chain. So we kind of took what I call like a Lego block approach almost and kind of built from there um, to the point now, you know, where, you know, several hundred million dollars of e-com sales through the resellers, you know, uh, there's now e-com sales that are, that are direct um, to certain customers that, that want it and need it. Um, and we'll talk through some of that as well. Um, and we now have marketing tied in with the sales so we can go do some of these kind of digital demand generation activities tied in with that as well that we weren't able to do as well before. So pretty long journey. So you, yeah, I know it was a decade, right? So and, yeah. and GP is not a small company, but a lot of the folks listening to this series are not, you know, they're, they're larger companies and they want to transform, which is why they're interested in this topic. Right? Yeah. So, so you guys ended up really where, um, you know, that, that thing I showed earlier where you had all these mm -hmm. channels, they're digitally enabled, you're selling direct, you've got resellers selling direct, you got mm -hmm. retailers selling direct, you got distributors selling yeah. through their e-commerce, right? So it really was, and you, I know Amazon. So, mm -hmm. What role did that end customer play? What role did the, you know, the, what I call the ultimate customer in the book, the user of the product play in that journey and, and as yeah. you need those moves? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And so, you know, one of the things that we looked at was we, we kind of did like a table or a matrix. So if you think about it, the columns on the top were what are the different types of end users? So vertical segments, right? So in a healthcare or a food service or et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then the horizontals are the ones you kind of laid out. These are the resellers, marketplaces, et cetera. And then in the box, we kind of said, who is the type of end user that's most likely going to go buy from here, right? And, and that was pretty helpful because then what that end user is kind of dictating, what you talk about is the end user is then dictating what information do they need, what products do they need, and as well, what services do they need. And so you could, you'd have to find commonality, otherwise you couldn't make money. But then you also had to find the nuances where you thought there might be some growth. And so, you know, one example for us is there was uh, a big segment of the small and medium business kind of end users um, that we didn't have a very good way to reach with how we traditionally went to market. And there were some of those boxes 
um, that we highlighted in green that said, wow, we can really go after small and medium businesses. And we went after them that way. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, just in listening to you also about the number of different ways that you can go to market and the traditional ways in which you've gone to market. You know, there's a role for the rep really in making sure that the value prop was being nuanced to almost each and every buyer, I presume. Um, which I think, as you imagine, you explain this well in the matrix, but even as you're attempting to move over into e-commerce, you know, there is the, the chance maybe that you're disintermediating that sort of value connection mm -hmm. that happened right at the, at the last, last mile. You know, and then how did you guys think about that? I mean, what was the approach that you took maybe to figure out the right way to manage the user experience such that, uh, and to do so in conjunction with your selling partners um, in a way that was going to have the most effect for you? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And, and to be honest, we, we struggled with it for a little while. It wasn't easy, right? I mean, even just to the simple thing of what do you write in the bullet on a product detail page? Because, you know, we're used to saying, hey, you know, the paper towel dispenser's system gives you this benefit in a restaurant, but the benefit's very different in an office building. Right. And so, but guess what? You only have one detail page on a reseller that, and they're all coming in. And so, um, you know, but we've, so we found ways to add all that verbiage into the product content and copy. You know, the other thing that we learned along the way was we made some decisions on which systems of products we did not think were going to be really self-serve and which ones were going to almost always be assisted selling, if that mm -hmm. made sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so we changed how we did the product content, the visuals, the search terms, et cetera, and even the types of PDFs and spec sheets we would put on, if we felt like it was something that the seller was going to actually sell or the distribution rep would sell on our behalf versus a end user might come directly on the reseller site and self-serve and get it done. And so we tailored our content and our assortment um, kind of along those. And once we were able to do that, that was actually super helpful um, because then we're enabling, we were enabling the sales reps in two way. One, if they had an account, uh, and there was these long tail items, they didn't have time to sell, but they were getting credit for the sale. Mm -hmm. Or second, the stuff that they spend time talking about in the consultative sale that Brian talks about, hey, now they have more time to talk with a consultative sale, but they have like a guide or a tool to remember all the information when they need it. And they can kind of close those sales a little bit. Oh, more. that's really interesting. So it sounds, if I'm understanding this correctly, you almost took a hierarchical approach or a category-based approach to the products and said, which is most likely to be a direct sale, which is likely to be a facilitated sale, and then set up the e-com experience in a way to facilitate one of those two different paths. Yes, you got it. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And I think that's a, that's a great framework to think through it, Shalene. I, I, it's awesome. So I'm, I'm sure the folks listening will uh, appreciate that. You know, the, so I, oftentimes when I'm talking to um, B2B folks, executives of B2B firms, particularly if they're a manufacturer like GP is, um, well, really any, any of them, but they're worried about this, you know, about channel conflict. You know, if I launch e-commerce or if I enable these channels or if I sell on Amazon or I'm going to, you know, my, my dealers, my distributors, my retailers are going to freak out and they're going to stop buying from me and I'm, no more orders from Home Depot for you. Right. <laughs> Or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Or Henry yeah, Stein or Granger. Yeah, or they're all gone, right. They're all gone. My business is gone, yeah. right? And and um, you know, I know you know I lived consumer side of e-commerce for 18 years almost and saw that evolution happen in consumer. But I mean you did you live this in B2B. Oh, yeah. What's bigger? Is it the perception 
or is it the reality? I mean, did, when you guys started going into this and, and, and saw these changes, I mean, what uh, did, did, you know, your, all your channels just suddenly stop buying from you because you have an e-commerce site? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I will tell you my, my experience, it was perception versus reality, right? Um, and so can I give you a little bit of a story, right? So, I mean, two of them, one, you mentioned, you know, one, when we were starting to bring on Amazon, have that relationship up and coming, we, that's channel calling, which is no different than other channels kind of coming on. Uh, when we did our own site, um, there was a lot of internal concern. Every customer is going to be upset. They're never going to do business with us. going to take everything away. And so one of the things we actually did in listening, and that was months and months of these conversations, mm -hmm. um, which were adequate. I mean, people needed to understand what we were trying to do. Um, and so we then find, okay, well, let's go talk to the customers directly. So we went and talked to 16 of our, you know, most strategic, thoughtful um, resale partners and customers of all different sizes, right? The, the national $40 billion resellers, you know, to the, the smaller ones, you know, and to a T, all of them said, yeah, you should do this. Can you make sure you share your learnings with us, right? And let's make sure we're going on round. And so, you know, I think it was the, you know, I say perception versus reality, because when you explain who you're going after, what you're actually trying to accomplish, and how that benefits the, the joint business, it makes, it makes you know, almost all sense. I mean, we, we had one customer, obviously, that, that made a lot of noise um, after we launched it. Um, and it's like, it, cause there was a promotion we ran on a product, but we managed it, right? We explained to him what we were doing, how that was going to work, how that didn't destroy any part of their business. Um, and you know, and we went from there and, and data won the way, right? That, that reseller was not selling any of the products that we were promoting, which is why we were promoting it. Um, and so I, for me, the perception, um, was way overdone, um, versus what the reality of the situation was. You just touched on something really important, which is you segmented the assortment. You looked at the product lines, you said, and, and so you thought about that strategically as it relates to the channels, right? And I think that's, yes. that's an important takeaway. Um, so that's, a, I mean, that's a fantastic example. So that's kind of the external side. Let's talk about a minute for, about, you know, the internal piece, right? So, you know, the other part of conflict I highlighted earlier was, you know, the death of a salesman, right? Yeah. And you guys, you and James were just talking about this a little bit. What, how did you guys align the internal sales team? How, what kinds of things did you, did you incentivize the sales team? Did you align them with, you know, commissions on e-com sales and what, what kinds of things? Tell us, take, take us down a little bit into more detail around how you, how you aligned internally um, these, these different selling channels. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, I mean, first and foremost, I, I, um, I actually sat on the senior sales leadership team. So my boss was the head of sales. And so okay. there was shared incentive number one, which is, hey, I got to make sure, uh, you know, I'm doing whatever. <laughs> yeah, I got to keep the boss happy, right? And keep my peers happy. Otherwise, you can't do it. That's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And then, but, but it does actually create a very different, I think, MO, right? Because it's like, hey, you are in the boat with us. We're going to build this boat together. And so let's figure out how to make all those things happen. So it does actually create, I think, um, a nice forcing mechanism. You know, the other thing, a couple other things that we did is, you know, when we, the sales leaders that kind of had account ownership for some of our resellers, right? We never, they still own the overall customer relationship. They own the entire customer strategy. All we would just say is, well, which, what part of your customer strategy is e-commerce going to be there? We, you know, we just said, look, we got to make sure if they have an e-commerce uh, platform or are going to, how is that going to play into what our overall customer strategy is with them? So I would have responsibility for the overall e-commerce strategy. 
they would have responsibility for the customer strategies like you mentioned earlier, Granger and Zorro. So someone would have the Granger strategy in the Zorro, but I'd have the e-com that fits in with it, right? And that was a forced tension, um, but it was good, right? And then same, we would also have shared, uh, to your point on incentives, we'd have shared objectives, right? So if we need to sell this much through Staples or this much through Henry Shine, here's how much we think we want to sell on e-commerce through them or on our own, right? Um, and then the part that we did on our own, which was helpful on the incentives, uh, we, we just said, look, you know, you have uh, a target on what you need to go hit in terms of number of dispensers placed or new product rollout or whatnot. As long as you hit those and you're using the e-commerce site, great. And then my profitability was based on, is that a profitable sale or not? We didn't hold them accountable for that because we want to just make sure we're getting the tools to help either enable them or if it was a self-service sale, that would get, um, depending on where the lead came in from as well. So that's kind of how we shared through that. I mean, and then the other piece, you know, on the sales part that helped a lot is some expectations and responsibilities that we call them at George Pacific into the supply chain and marketing teams as well. And so that would made it, that actually helped uh, quite a bit because now you had the entire customer team really having shared responsibilities across all of those. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the e-commerce would have a different marketing need or a different supply chain need as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, channel conflict almost from the point of view of the rep, um, yeah. you know, or the, the, selling, the selling channel. But what, you're, what seems like what, you had a very robust and mature distribution mechanism, right? From product conception through to ultimately getting in the hands of the consumer. And certainly the sales team is a component of that. I, I'd be curious to know, in that evolution, did you run into other points of conflict, you know, things that suddenly created, you know, contention that maybe you didn't an anticipate on the way in? Um, yes. <laughs> we all learned something, right? Yeah, right. Um, so one of the things that I learned was, you know, so we have um, a commercial ops and sales operations team, right, that really mm -hmm. looks at all the pricing deals and helps with the annual negotiation programs with channel partners and resellers and things. And one of the contingent points was, you know, if we were selling through e-commerce or wanting to do, you know, marketing in e-commerce or spend time or resources in e-commerce, it didn't really fit the bill of, you know, fitting into the existing tool set and processes of how we looked at those operations. Right. Right. And, uh, and so that took, you know, uh, quite a bit of, one, learning on, on me, on how the heck we do this internally. And then two, how the heck is that going to work in a digital world? Because right. the outcome still needs to be there. We need to make sure we're profitable on both sides, mutual value, but it's going to be done in a different way. And so that was probably one of the bigger, you know, unexpected ones because sales and sales ops, as we call them, were so intertwined. And we had taken care of this part, but the, the sales ops piece is something we needed to work through more with. Yeah. You know, listening to you talk to you, there's something about the evolution of, you know, for all that we've done in digital, right? We're call it maybe 20 to 25 years in. Yeah. Um, for businesses that have been around for a hundred years. And so there's well-established processes and there's yeah. well-established ways of doing business. And, you know, while we think e-commerce is mature, we're still reasonably new at this. Um, and it's been so disruptive in so many diff different ways. I mean, one of the things that we're starting to be conscious of too, I think is how, it is relating to the, what used to be relationship-driven businesses where mm -hmm. we're so dependent on how we talk to one another, how we engage, knowing each other, and having that as the, as the channel and ways in which we sell and communicate. I guess in your observation, um, 
how have we done, you know, how have we done, how have you done on that in terms of maintaining the human side of the relationship while also building a much more digitized business? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. You know, it, you, when you mention it, it reminds me of something real quick. I mean, we were in a um, kind of joint sales and marketing sales ops leadership kickoff. And I remember our, my boss had a sales stood up and his slides said simply relationships matter. Mm-hmm. And then he went through and he said, but they're going to be really different, right? And so your relationship with someone's going to matter to your point, the human side. So, you know, our sales rep relationship with if a field sales with a field seller or headquarter to headquarters, they all still matter because there's, there's still a trust factor that never, that will not go away. And there's a human factor to trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you think about the same thing, there's a, the digital factor to trust as well. Right. And mm-hmm. so, the information that we put on a product detail page, the information we put on a marketing asset, all of that needs to be just as trustworthy in a digital way. If we send them an email, if we want to help them troubleshoot a paper jam, if we want to help them troubleshoot cleaning data or, or you know, various different ways, um, all of those relationships matter. So I think externally what it really did was um, really help us understand which pieces were really core to gaining the trust and which pieces were just essential to kind of keeping the lights going on more on that transactional. That's and a lot of the digital really took care of the transactional. Um, you know, the internal thing, you know, Jameis said was probably the most surprising to me was how much it created the need for this faster collaboration, right? So mm-hmm. we weren't using agile methodologies or anything, but immediately, you know, we get a phone call, they didn't get their shipment. Oh, wait, the you know, our reseller put a really bad price out there. Now everyone's arguing why they matched it or something, right? And right. and you didn't have, okay, let me think about it. Let me get everybody organized. Let me get a steering committee together. Let me get a couple of weeks. I'll put a response, right? It's like, I got to go find somebody. And in three, you know, three minutes, I got to go find an answer. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was also very energizing, right? When you explain to people, like, we can just get things done quickly with the knowledge. Mm-hmm. But that changed a lot of internal relationships as well of different groups that probably didn't talk as fast as they used to, especially if I think through kind of now from eight years ago. So that's how I'd say kind of the human piece has kind of evolved. Yeah, you use a really important word there around trust because that's certainly been, you know, between a sales rep and the customer has always been that relationship of, do we trust, you know, can you trust, right? That I'm going to stand behind yeah. the service and product that I'm offering. Fascinating to hear about how you can take that same word and then bring it back through the company's digital um, you know, presentation of itself and understand what can be digitized and what needs to stay with the humans. Um, must be a fascinating sociological experiment as well. Yeah, and it, and Jim, it's interesting you said too. And I think the trust also extends from the sales team to the digital organization, right? Because, right. because you've, you've also got to, you know, this, I, I've heard cases of where these aren't aligned and, and Shelly and you guys did a good job aligning those channels going to market where the sales team is not supportive of the B2, uh, B2B e-commerce effort, regardless of whether it's selling to Amazon or, you know, other, other peer plays or selling direct, that can kill a, um, uh, an effort, a collaborative effort. In other words, sales teams, I've heard cases where you know the sales team's working actively against e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Don't know that. Call me. I'll give you a better price or whatever. Right. You see, that trust needs to extend the other way. And I love the way you guys structured it, where you're in the sales organization. Uh, it takes real leadership, I think, from your sales organization to evolve, right? To think that this digital can be enabling. And I love that example you gave just a minute ago. That's that's fantastic. So kudos to GP on that. Um, so so you guys have ended up with. 
a lot or GP has ended up with a lot of these different selling channels. Mm -hmm. We alluded to this a little earlier, you know, you've got your, you know, your large distributors, your mid-sized distributors, your Cisco's, your, you know, your Henry shines and whoever, all these different, yeah. what, you know, and, and so, and you alluded to this, you've got some value that you've learned and pulled from your own e-commerce. Mm -hmm. How do you on a consistent basis help their, help them? Cause a lot of companies don't realize that as you're learning for your own e-com and your own, digital efforts, you can actually then feed that to, you know, these channels and help them become better, right? You alluded to this earlier. Let's go a layer down on that. What are some of the specific things you did there? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of ones, you know, so we talked a little bit, you know, some of the pure play resellers, you mentioned Zorro in the introduction as an example, right? One of the things we did is we would look at our promotions and our conversions and, you know, our return on our marketing investment for lack of a better word you know how many sales did we get for the digital ad dollars we put out and then we use those as benchmarks to then take that to our customers so if we said hey look we think we can invest you know x thousands of dollars and get x thousands in return with you are you in does that make sense to you do you have a program like that so that was one that was actually super helpful and then when they if we got into the program we would say but here's what we learned that worked Right. And so sometimes we would say, look, if they're off your site, don't show my product. When they're on your site, show my product. When they're off their product, show them who they are in their business. And so and, and so we could use a lot of those data points. You know, another thing that became uh, super helpful was, you know, we spent a lot of time working on what is the right wording for search. Um, you know, and the simple example was and it sounds pedantic now. Right. But it's a journey. Bath tissue. Nobody's typing in bath tissue. Everybody types in toilet paper. Right. Um, <laughs> So in our data, it said toilet paper, but in all the resellers' data, it was still saying bath tissue, and everyone would type in toilet paper. So you know, and we would show them the differences, and we we had you know, and they would go, oh right, and so you know that would help their whole category, not just us sometimes. You, you just, um, by the way, Shalene, you just explained the great toilet paper crisis. Yeah, there you go. told them that everyone started typing in, you know. <laughs> They just type in toilet paper everywhere. I got to change and, that. And, and then you right. fill the demand and all the toilet paper's gone. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and it's all gone. Yeah. So, and I have no inside way of getting toilet paper. Out of it, so. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that was probably, you know, the search ones, the conversions and that um, were some of the ones. And then the other things that we, one of the other things that we would test was sometimes we'd start testing whether or not certain messages, certain products or certain sales scripts might work as well. So when we're doing some new product innovations, um, mm -hmm. I remember we, you know, we, we, we just recently launched a pretty neat hygienic um, non-touchless cutlery system. Um, and, and it was new and, and we had a lot of different ideas on how to maybe go sell it. Well, we just tested which words work, which sales scripts work, what types of customers actually got interested. And then we use those learnings to then go to the resellers and say, hey, here are the types of accounts we want to target. Here's the language we should be using. Here's a value prop that worked. And, and that became pretty powerful, right? That we could even take the off online, 100% online self-serve and impact the offline world as well and kind of the hybrid world. So that's just some of how we learned some of those learnings. That's, so. that's fantastic. And I think that's part of also how you probably message to the channels, right? When you, were, when you alluded to this earlier, when you go out to the distributors, to the retailers you're selling to, um, showing them, did you find that the retailers and resellers over your, you know, your 10 years there, were they becoming more receptive to those messages? Were they, you know, was that resonating with them more that they understand that you could actually add value from your own e-commerce efforts? Was that, so did you see kind of more acceptance of your own sort of e-commerce channels over time? 
yes, absolutely. I mean, early on, to your point, Brian, it, they were like, yeah, they kind of did the head nod, but I think it was when they left the room, they were like, yeah, whatever. But they got to the point, you know, more recently where the resellers are coming back and saying, here's my program. I can give you this search boost or this or that or that. Here's how much money and here's the return we think you're going to get. And I'm like, wow, I, we used to do the other way. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely saw a pretty big change in kind right. of the destination and the thinking that way. That's great. That's great. So we've talked, we've talked a lot about some of your traditional distribution channels, how yeah. they've digitized. And, uh, you know, anytime we talk about e-commerce evolution, we have to talk about the company that's responsible for 50% of U.S. e-commerce. <laughs> it's right, insane right. if you think about it, right? And, and by the way, it's not just consumer now. It's also B2B. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about Amazon, of course. And, you know, they, you know, the dominant player in consumer, they're anticipated to be $52 billion in B2B transactions yeah. within three or four years. RBC Capital Markets came out with a report on that. I mean, the B2B side of that business is incredible. It's now the fastest growing part of Amazon. So, and that's a lot of the work that we do at, at my firm in SIBA. Um, but the, um, tell us about how you guys dealt with that. What were, the, um, what, were the, what were the aspects of conflict? How did you approach Amazon? What was your strategy? There's multiple ways to think about Amazon as a manufacturer. What was your strategy and how did that evolve over your time working with them? Yeah, so I mean, it, I think it evolves weekly, but um, in one way. But <laughs> the, uh, you know, I would say that the overarching kind of um, strategy is we didn't look at them as a traditional reseller, um, and we we took the framework and said, look, they are a technology services partner, um, and so if we were to go ask the world, what are all the technical e-commerce things that maybe we can't go to ourselves or that we think the industry might need? Can they go do those? Um, and so and the reason that was helpful for us, Brian, is, you know, to your point, we looked at them as a partner. We looked at them as an innovator. We looked at them as a competitor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we looked at them um, as a vendor as well, because we were part of obviously Amazon marketing services where we're buying media, mm -hmm. right? And so we looked at them as the entire ecosystem, um, and, which was painful, but it was, you know, I think it had some merits to it. Uh, I think the thing we always knew is if, if we came up with ideas that, wouldn't help their category grow, then we just had to do our part to make sure we're growing with that part of their category. And we had to do it in a way that made sure that the profit was gonna kind of make sense for both of us. But we said no as well. I mean, our top two brands and pro, we did not um, directly sell in Amazon. We said no, we didn't feel like they met our criteria and requirements of what's required in the market for those types of products, given their premium nature and things that kind of go around it. Um, but yeah, they were, we were worried about what they're going to do in private labels. So we would always go, okay, if we do this, here's the data. What are they going to do with that data? Oh, if they do that, what are we going to do? And we'd have to, you know, I hate to use it. We'd have to game it out. I mean, a little bit just to make sure that we can knew, kind of knew what we were managing. Um, but that was kind of our strategy. The other part that was super helpful was what we had mentioned, which is because we didn't think of them as a traditional kind of distributor, we tried very hard to not use all of our processes for everybody else force fit onto them. Mm. So what we did hard is we, you know, said, here's our policies and principles, but we're going to update our processes with Amazon. We're going to force them to help us innovate some things that might help us. And so um, that's kind of how we thought about them. Um, and so, you know, it's been a, it's been a successful business. I think we've done lots of partnerships. We have, you know, dozens and dozens of failed experiments to say the least. Um, but a couple that worked, right? And right. so the couple that worked, worked really well. 
and so that's that's kind of how we've thought about them so far yeah it's interesting that you say you know there's a lot of a lot of nuggets in what you just said and i think you got to realize with amazon it is different than maybe your other channels um that you traditionally sold to and the approach you took is interesting where you you broke it down really on a product by product basis right i mean that's what you're saying product line brand specific mm -hmm. product does it make sense on amazon doesn't it that kind of thing so i think that's that's a wise um that's a wise approach um and so, and how did your other channels react when you were selling on amazon how did you manage that that yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, so, you know, when we, you know, when we first went on there, I mean, they got very up in arms, <laughs> to say the least, primarily for two reasons. One, you know, they were balking about price, which is no, you know, no surprise. And the other one was some of these premium products where it, they're just long sales cycles. And you know, they're like, wait a minute, we have all these agreements in place. And so, um, but over time, we put in some specific processes. I mean, we, we put in a minimum advertised price um, policy, as an example, uh, and, and a few others that really showed to the partners, look, here's what you can do really well, and that's what we want to do with you, right? And so if you have these complex set of services that you know Amazon Business doesn't have, then we want to use those. But here's some things that they have that you that you don't, and we would actually show them, look, we'll be more profitable together if we do these things versus that. And so it, it goes back to the trust that we were talking about with Jameis. It was, it was not easy. Um, and it's, and the other part is it's never ending. I think you just kind of, once you get the mentality of they're just going to get upset. Um, and the one thing that was helpful though, is we would always look at the numbers and go, are they losing a lot of share or are they losing a lot of profit? We believe in, is that why they're complaining? Then let's solve that problem. And are they just using Amazon as an excuse? Um, and so that helped quite a bit actually. And we wouldn't yeah. tell the customer that obviously that <laughs> was excuse. Um, but that was actually super helpful. Like we had, you know, our sharp sales ops team would say, this is their real problem. Okay. Let's solve that one. Yeah. We don't need to solve the Amazon thing. Well, and the other thing you said in there, which was really cool was, you know, and that was what I lose back to what I was sharing at the beginning that, you know, understanding the value that the, each, co each company, mm -hmm. uh, each reseller provides. Right. So what does Amazon do differently than, say, some of your other resellers? You know, look, I think Amazon, in my opinion, is a great equalizer in the sense that they are they are forcing everyone to up their game, including all yeah. your distribution and resale channels um, with digital, with e-commerce, with making sure they understand the value they're adding to the end, that ultimate customer. And that's why I say anybody in this in this world now has to start with that end customer. And are you doing the best job for that customer? Whether you're making the product and selling to somebody else or whether you're reselling the product, it's that, you know, making sure you're adding value. Yeah. So um, good stuff, guys. So this is a great discussion. So I, um, I asked this question of everybody <laughs> that joins the uh, virtual book tour. And, and uh, Jameis, I'm going to ask it to you again. So uh, may maybe you uh, put a different spin on your last answer. <laughs> but Shalene, uh, what is – okay, so – you know, I talk to companies who have never started their digital transformation journey. They're just getting going in e-commerce. 50% of B2B companies don't have an e-commerce yeah. site, believe it or not, still. So what advice would you give to a CEO of a company that's just starting its digital transformation journey now that you, you know, you've been down the path, you've worked with the yeah. leadership, what advice would you give? So I think the advice I would give would be, be very clear on what your business plan strategy is, whether it's speed to delivery of a customer, whether it's cost efficiency, it's acquisition of customers or innovation, whatever that overarching business goal has to be crystal clear. 
because that to me is the guiding principle for what the digital transformation needs to be. Um, Cause I think what I've, the reason I give that advice is otherwise I think everyone just says go digital and you don't know what to do with it. You know why you're going and it's like, well, yeah, like, okay, I turned my, I turned my paper into a Microsoft OneNote. I went digital and you're like, well, that doesn't solve the business problem, right? Maybe it does if it's efficient working, but uh, that I think um, is a big advice I'd give. Cause I also think that forces you to go and understand what, we talked about the processes. Don't digitize analog processes. Come up with the new ways of working and how that, that world works. Um, that, that'd be the thing I'd give them the most advice on. Awesome. What about you, Jameis? Well, I'll try and be consistent with my previous answer. And the good news is um, Charlene left a, uh, an opening for me to do that. <laughs> there you go. Um, there was something you said a few minutes ago, which I actually took a note on too, which is we did dozens and dozens of things wrong and a few things were right. And um, that just speaks so well to the attitude of the business around let's test, let's learn, let's be comfortable failing, let's be comfortable as long as we're failing quickly and learning from it. Um, and as we talked before, at least in our view, so much of what we're doing in a young industry, and 20 years in, it's still a young industry, is about learning. Um, and so generally when I speak with digital leaders, um, you know, I often encourage them to get really comfortable with the expression of, I don't know, what do you think? Um, because we're all learning along the way and sort of having the right culture of test, learn, um, you know, if something quote unquote fails, in fact, that's just the way we pay tuition now. So um, having that attitude that we pay to learn, right? And we pay to learn through trial and error is a wonderful thing. And uh, being very comfortable admitting that we're all gonna get a lot of things wrong on the way to getting it right. That is, uh, I love that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you, you honed in on the testing and Shelly and I think said that, talked about, you know, failing and learning. I mean, that's, that's, that's at the core of Amazon's, you know, approach mm -hmm. to, to business. And I, I work and talk a lot with the Amazon uh, teams, particularly the Amazon business team. And I mean, they, they actually, at, at almost a million employees, they still maintain that approach. It's the customer first, but it's also let's try things and fail. And they view failing as a win. Right. When, they, when they fail, that's successful because they mm -hmm. learn something. Even if you look at the history of Amazon business, I mean, their first iteration was Amazon supply. It didn't work. They reached, they rebooted, they learned, and they're doing things differently and they're succeeding. So great, great advice, guys, from both of you. Uh, and I want to thank both of you for joining us um, on this. Yeah. This has been a fantastic discussion. Um, and uh, you guys are uh, giving some great advice for our listeners. So thank you for that. So thank you all for joining. Good luck on your digital transformation journey. And I hope to uh, see you uh, as a digitally mature company really soon. Thank you so much.